that don't center domination, that don't center carceral modes of being, and that don't center this very American lifestyle that doesn't honor people's happiness or humanity, and especially how these systems met out their injustices on Black and brown women, on queer women in general, because oftentimes we end up being the brunt of these systems. Welcome to Decolonization in Action, a podcast that considers how knowledge, medicine, science, and the arts are being decolonized today. My name is Edna Bonhomme, and I am broadcasting from Berlin, Germany. This podcast is co-hosted by the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science. To learn more about the episode or to find information about the people and events referenced, please visit www.decolonizationinaction.com. In season two, episode eight, I spoke with Heba Ali. Heba Ali is a digital artist, educator, scholar, DJ, experimental music producer, and curator based across Chicago, Illinois, Austin, Texas, and Toronto, Ontario. Her performances and videos concern surveillance, women of color, and labor. She conducts reading groups addressing digital media and workshops with open source technology. She is currently a PhD candidate in cultural studies at Queen's University in Kingston, Canada. Thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thanks, Edna, for interviewing me. I'm excited to be here. There's a lot going on right now in the world. There's a global pandemic and the ideas about how people move and where they're based is very much changing extensively. So given that you've worked in so many different places, and lived in so many different places. Where are you currently based? And how has the COVID-19 pandemic impacted your community? Yeah, I'm currently in Kingston. Uh, it's a small um, Canadian town on, on the East Coast of Canada, um, relatively homogenous uh, white town. Um, it's, I moved here, me, my, me and my partner moved here earlier this year um, so I could um, teach um, as part of my PhD degree. And with COVID-19 has impacted um, this area and my own, my own practice right now because uh, of just a lot of like exhibitions and workshops we're planning have shifted or been canceled. When quarantine here first started, um, my classes shifted online. In terms of social distancing and those policies, I've noticed that um, not just in Canada, but in the U.S. and elsewhere, that a lot of rental agencies, because I'm, I'm renting an apartment with my partner, um, have used this time to think of as like free open time to you know, to do renovations. And so there's been a request left and right to can we come to your, the apartment and take some photos? Can we install this? And, you know, we'll we'll observe all the safety measure measure measures. But last time I agreed to something. The person who came was not wearing a mask, was not wearing gloves. And so it seems like really haphazard and for like use of safety um and we have noticed that when we step out um on like sunny days like social social distancing physical distancing is like out of the way like it's not even even a thing people are considering like last time we went out and it was really sunny like on the main street because it's a small town there's only one main street um there were there was no like six feet rule like no one was observing that and i've actually recently found out that you need to have more than six feet because of the way in which a sneeze travels like a man had like his set his dog loose without a leash so it was all types of like messiness and so yeah that's how kind of where 
doing up here. Because I'm in a small town, there the cases have not been as much um, as in like bigger cities like Toronto. So that's how it's been going here. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that you're doing okay and that if there isn't a major impact outside of the, well, the housing issue as well as question around art and exhibitions and the uh, difficulties of, with that. So your work cuts across at the intersection of art and activism, and you've been able to conduct work that also integrates labor justice in the world of technoscience. In your video, We're All Living, Workers' Liberation as Environmental Justice, it's a video designed a virtual world so that people can navigate through 3D animation where Amazon's facial recognition software facilitates predatory labor practices. Can you tell me about how you began that research and practice and how you're able to integrate it into a, a visual and digital format? Yeah, um, this is a really good question. I, I, I like wrote down a lot of notes when I was thinking about it. So my work with Amazon uh, began in 2018. Um, prior to that, I've been studying like the con conceptual idea of a network and labor and Everything seems clear when look upon the past and you can notice trends and within our thoughts and our interests. So, you know, I recently did a residency, uh, like an Instagram residency of like a takeover with left with this contemporary space called Left. They're based in Windsor. And as I was sharing my work and the way it's evolved throughout the years, I started noticing patterns and pat and interests. And I was like, oh, I've always been interested in how uh, women of color negotiate labor within technology and technological spaces. And not just technology that is tied to quote unquote electricity, but modes of technology that don't rely on electricity. So um, prior to that, I've been studying networks and thinking about how networks exist in both land and air. I read books by Lisa Parks, as well as uh, Wendy Hugh Kong Chun. So I, I, I kind of started this, this interest with a project called Satellites, which is a video, it was a sculpture installation. And I was thinking about this idea, you know, that was like really big in the 90s, and, and onward on globalization, how we become globalized. And through researching the like the first global transmission um, that like was like between like seven different countries and Russia was in it, but then pulled out because of Cold War uh, concerns and skirmishes. And through that project, I learned like all these like, kind of false ideas around on connectivity and all, to, all of these other kind of like buzzwords that people have continued to use throughout the years. And ideologies of the 90s internet on like, you know, on internet, there's no race, on the internet, there's no gender. I learned that from, from that time to now that all those promises are not founded in any type of reality. In fact, the internet uh, can be used to very much replicate the same biases, the same inequities that we have historically experienced in real life. So I did that early work with satellites. Then, so I, you know, thinking about the sky and looking up and then I looked down at the land and how the history and the spaces of the land is laid out, um, how their networks on the land is laid out, how, how do our products get from one place to another? And so I did a project called con-tain-er to kind of break down the word container. This project was inspired by a yellow art shipping container that I had gotten from a discussion with a professor. I think about the container and the many hands and spaces it traveled through, and that inspired me to learn about the history of, of global shipping that 
we don't really learn about in the U.S. It, we always assume that the space was always already existing. And that's, you know, actually erroneous because global shipping has, was only a recent man-made invention that really started full scale in 50s or 60s. And so it's it's only been recent that this 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 global shipping has actually existed as a space and we can change that structure anytime if we want. So for that installation, I embodied a worker who was coordinating the shipping systems and kind of pointing to different shipping lines. In the video, I say Far East, North Europe, North Europe, Far East, these different spaces in the world. And uh, notably, um, any, any shipping line mentioned in that video does not mention Africa at all. So I'm thinking about who's not included in ideas and modalities of contemporary shipping. Then after that, I did an installation called Telestar. So previously, Container was Condestar. It was a two-channel video in, on top of a yellow container with a video inside and a video outside with one audio channel. Um, and in, in, in Telestar, that project is named after the first American satellite called Telstar. It, it was launched in the 60s and launched by AT&T and in the Canada we know as Bell. So AT&T Archives in, in San Antonio has all of these early kind of images that are part of a press release of this first American satellite, Telstar. And they have all these images of really white men work, quote unquote, working, but they're not actually working. They're just looking like they're working because they have to release these images to the public so that a, a whole new technology could be made intelligible to, to the public. It's the same way that VR technologies are like hyped right now. These images really, all you see is white men creating this. So I was thinking about what would it mean if someone like me, someone who's black, brown and Muslim, was in the space and how does the multiple selves that I have taking up agency in these in these spaces can uh, not reproduce a colonial or imperial way of being because technology history is tied up with the military is tied up with systems of control and domination. So I kind of created an alternative timeline where multiple versions of me are working on like a satellite that connects Earth to you know other planets to Pluto and to Mars. This project is interesting to talk about now because my partner just told me yesterday that during the uprisings that we're living through right now in the U.S., that there's been a, a rocket launched in space. Mm-hmm. It just launched yesterday from SpaceX. Even in times of, you know, crisis of the of coronavirus and times of uprising, status quo is very much interested in going to a different planet so we can mess it up in the same way. These past few projects, I have been really interested in thinking about the history around networks. So global shipping networks, satellite networks and transmission. I was like, that. I've done like the archival work and that's been really exciting place where we imagine the archive and interrogate it, et cetera, about who's missing in the archive. And so I asked myself, what's the contemporary way of shipping right now? What's the idea around labor right now? And that's where I made this, um, I made this performance called To Be a Box. And in that performance, I became an Amazon box. And like I was wearing a costume that I was supposed to represent the Amazon box. And I wrote a script that me and, and our historian, Lilia Taboda and I read. And basically that she asked me questions. I'm like, I'm just like reading the, like the global shipping system and the way Amazon works. 
So, you know, I, I make comments about how the environment is being destroyed. I make comments about, you know, people stealing from the warehouse workers because that's what's happening. I have a body like a very sarcastic ca- character who reads the inequities as part of the system uh, for filth, basically taking a page from all of my queer family right now. I'm reading the room, reading the, the spaces that labor does not take up. I actually ended up working at Amazon Warehouse in Austin, Texas. I needed money because I was moving from Texas to Kingston, where I'm now, and I needed money in that or that time period. So I ended up working at Amazon and Amazon Warehouse in Austin, Texas. And there I worked with my one of my friends. She told me about, about the job originally. Um, and I learned about how Amazon works from, from the inside. And that was um, unique because I was actually beyond the, like in addition to getting the money, I wanted to understand what that was like as well. I grew up poor and working class. So that was also something I was interested in because all of my you know, life in the U.S. has been defined by labor uh, and the labor of women specifically. After maybe a year of, of, of working there, then I had to prepare to move because I was also working like two jobs at the time to save money. I ended up developing a script around video work and installation called Abra. And Abra is named after like the first name for Amazon, uh, Bezos, when he was giving up this company. Uh, you called it Abracadabra because it was the idea of a box magically appearing out your door. And that kind of early foundation is very much how Amazon has tricked people into thinking that it's the only and the most convenient option. So and in the video, I talked to Amazon's mascot, Pecky, who is like their customer obsessed mascot that I would see on wall on the walls and posters and while I worked at the Amazon warehouse. Most recently, I uh, believe in this past May, I finished residency with Daimon and they're based in Gatineau in Montreal. And this work is called We Are Living, Workers' Liberation as Environmental Justice. And in the video, it's a 360 experience. So when you open it in YouTube, and you can click through the video and get a 360 experience. You can, cl- you can click and drag and the, the screen will shift. And the video starts off with a question like, what does a world without Amazon look like? And over time, the ground changes, the sky changes. And there's images of um, protests that where warehouse workers have organized and created. And over time, uh, trees and nature start growing in the space and until the whole screen fills up with trees and leaves and um as part of the audio it's a music i made that goes with the the project it's meditative music one of the protests that were organized uh, around covid19 in shakopee minnesota by hafza hassan um she i found her video um, on twitter somebody had posted it and she's talking about all of the issues that um, warehouse workers are having during the COVID-19 crisis. I have a question about that. Since the coronavirus pandemic has been going on, Jeff Bezos has profited from this global lockdown. And in many ways, there's just imbalance between a, a company that has provided a certain kind of convenience and then the reality of the workers who've been protesting, having blockout days, et cetera. And how does your research help to dissect some of those tensions and dynamics? 
kind of seen as a spokesperson for the warehouse workers and I I'm not the spokesperson you know the spokesperson are the people who are working there now have continued to work and are organizers and so they have more of an insight and their perspectives I value those are the people that I'm going to um, uplift and feature in my work so I I also look at a lot of um, uh, prison abolition and abolitionist work in general um, and thinking about how these systems are tied to forms of carcerality, forms of control, and it's really control of our of, of our bodies and minds and, and, and limits. I'm really inspired by work by Mariam Kahaba and I have done, been doing reading and thinking through systems of surveillance and race. So some theorists I follow and I'm really um, inspired by their work are, are Simone Brown, Ruha Benjamin, Lisa Nakamura. Um, she did work on um, race and cyberspace, thinking about systems of economic exchange and, and Marxism outside of capitalism in this way uh, by Cedric Robinson, um, Carol Boyce Davies, and our artists that I, really, that I follow that really inspire me uh, are good friends and people I look up to, Diamond Stingley, Liz Maputo, and other artists I don't know myself, but I'm excited to excited by their work. Tabitha Rizar, Sandra Perry, Nina Sarrell. Um, there's a there's a really amazing festival in Toronto called Night Shifts that look at labor, working class labor, and honors the perspectives of people who work in different industries that um don't we don't know a lot about. Other people I'm inspired by look whose work I look up to are Hito Sterl, Mika Rottenberg, Black Audio Film Collective, Otolid Group. John Acumfra, Carrie Mae Weems, the Detroit Justice Network. Um, there's a, a, a reading group that I've been following called Abolitionist Futures. Uh, I've been attending a uh, reading group um, a meeting uh, that uh, is organized by Mandy Harris-Williams on the book Algorithms, Algorithms of Oppression by Sophia Umoja Noble um, at the Women's Center for Creative Work in LA. And being in community with all of these people really inspires me and to think about other ways which of which these systems um, can exist that don't center domination, that don't center carceral modes of being, and that don't center this very American lifestyle that doesn't honor people's happiness or humanity, and especially how these systems met out their injustices on black and brown women, on queer women in general, because oftentimes we end up being the brunt of these systems and we end up, and that, that's what Amazon is. A majority of, you know, their warehouse workers are black and brown people. And for the U.S. stats, they're reporting on, on race. And on the manager kind of pie chat, there's a lot more white managers. And on the laborers or workers, kind of other part, people who are not managers, it's more people of color, more black and brown people who, who work with a small chunk of white people who are, are not managers. So it becomes very obvi obvious at, at who's pulling the strings and who's being controlled. Uh, one of the things that rang heavy about what you were saying is the role of the carceral state. And you wrote an article titled Beyond, Between, and Under the Border, Navigating the Carceral State, and said, quote, to colonizers, borders were pure cartography, settling matters after beating the enemy with pen to paper, business was conducted, and a deal was made, end quote. 
And this quote for me is so, so important because in thinking about decolonization, not just as like a, a border making, it's also something that could have other political ramifications. And um, as you were alluding to, perhaps thinking outside of the Euro-American tradition, I wanted to ask you, how do you define decolonization and how is decoloniality coded in your activism and art? To take upon what you've said, outside of, you know, the Euro-American tradition, boundaries can be really healthy, right? I mean, we've heard about this and, you know, in like healing sessions, et cetera, like we can have boundaries with others. Like this is something I'm okay with, this is something I'm not okay with, this is how close I can be, this is how like, you know, there's like, obviously it's not a binary, but boundaries can be super duper healthy outside of the, you know, Euro-American framework. But within the Euro-American framework, historically, and I mean, and it's also with empires that are not European, like currently like Chinese imperialism, Saudi imperialism, et cetera, et cetera. Within, within this sort of empire and, and framework, borders are about power. They're about social, social control and cohesion. They're about othering. They are tools of the empire and the borders, especially the way they're enforced, are extremely successful at having people internalize borders. So even though, you know, we have people in our spaces that say, you know, are like, yes, you know, uh, I'm 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 not here for borders, I'm not here for empire. We can say these things, but because we're in, we're, we're immersed in within these spaces, it's challenging to not internalize that thinking, even though we can be vehemently outward against it. So we also internalize borders. Um, and that's why they're extremely successful. Um, and that's why when we live in like, you know, these like violent spaces, we internalize that violence so, because that's our way of trying to normalize it for ourselves. And borders are really good at like dismantling social cohesion and creating more division. The person I, I, I read in the past that I really appreciate is Saskia Sassen. She studies like globalization and borders and um, I find her work interest, uh, really interesting. So thinking about borders and decolonization, there's an essay I would recommend. It's called Decolonization is Not a Metaphor. The essay is by Tuck and Young. So this essay is about when thinking about how decolonization and since it became, you know, a, like uh, kind of a buzzword, kind of trend, when those how very easily like really powerful methodologies can become appropriated by capitalism and the status quo to really um, devalue and abstract the radical potential it holds. Because what happens when when that appropriation by status quo uh, occurs is that it recenters whiteness and it resettles theory. Is something that they've said. So an example, a kind of example would, would be like how a European person has a bunch of different teas from everywhere. You know, they notice they only have oolong and they're like, oh, that's not, that, that oolong tea is not enough. I need to have black tea. I need to have green tea. Like this kind of this sort of diversity model. And this kind of idea on diversity is not really being challenged besides physical representational politics, right? And so behind, behind that, those representational politics, there's no there's no questioning of like how do these teas get here? Who's working on these like tea plantations elsewhere in like East Asia and elsewhere? Um, so that's 
kind that's what the trajectory of these like spaces uh, what it happens so like this happened to key like you know a really amazing uh, powerful word uh, terms and theories like Kimberly Crenshaw's intersectionality this framework that was created by her to advocate for people who have layered identities you know for black women who had layered identities this term has been taken on to like just mean oh you know we're, it's, it just means diversity all these terms get corporatized because of the way in which the internet works and they become these like buzzwords. For me in my practice and something I was talking about with my partner actually yesterday was that we have to be constantly open to learning and challenging the way we think and the way what we believe. And that doesn't mean that what we believe is like it should not be um, granted an importance and understanding of just that we have to constantly challenge the way we are operating in, in our lives and in, in societies. Because when we, you know, even within like, quote unquote, liberalism, or even within quote unquote, you know, um, woke spaces, we have to constantly be challenging the, the way we're thinking. Because uh, if we only stay within a mono framework, we end up, we end up creating artificial bubbles around ourselves. Even within, you know, we, we're currently like isolated right now, doing physical distancing within our within our, in our, in our spaces. Um, it's, con- it's because the internet is an echo chamber. It's it's important to constantly be looking at different different what different people are doing in, in these different you know internet spaces as well. And that's also assuming that people have internet. Because if I think about my mom's generation, all uh, Haitian-born people who aren't really digitally inclined. My mom doesn't know what Facebook or Twitter is. (laughs) So she's living in a different sphere than I do, where I've been using the internet since I was like 10, 11. And it's just such a a digital divide that I, and I constantly have to remind myself, like I have to call her on an actual phone and give her a sense of like, that there's a world beyond the immediate community that she lives in. So there's also this digital currency that some people have access to and others don't. Yeah, I've been attending, I attended a few different seminars that um, Ida B. Wells Society put together. Mm. And uh, one of the, I believe, reporters at the time was talking about education. But a lot of um, teachers are assuming that their students have good internet and also have a computer that is theirs at home. Uh, some students share a computer with the whole household um, and they can, they could have, you know, multiple families within the same space. And some people are even assuming students have computers at all. Some, you know, a lot of students have been like using their smartphone or a sibling's smartphone to, to do their work. And so thinking about decolonization and how to think about this in terms of like worker, workers, workers liberation how to support that it's it's like listening to the organizers listening to the uh, listening to the people who are going through this on the ground and for example when corona virus um all of those um quarantine measures became in place there was um an act uh, there is an activist named chris smalls um and he worked at the uh I believe the staten island warehouse and when amazon refused to give them ppe equipment uh personal protection equipment uh, for their work, he started a protest with his coworkers around it um, because he was like, "We're not working. We're not going to sign up to be, you know, essentially sacrificial lambs for this company and for so that Bezos can like amass trillion trillions." Thank you so much for linking the decolonial practice to labor 
Because so often it does become something that's seen maybe at a state level or perhaps like you um, indicated with the article, decolonization is not a metaphor, that somehow it, it might seem more rhetorical to people, but there's actual divisions of labor that impact how people survive, how they move through the world, um, if they're able to have certain positions. And the, the, the colonial legacies in, ends up falling into place for uh, labor hierarchies that currently um, exist. On the one hand, uh, there's so much to be angry about. There's a pandemic, there's a massive assault on Black lives. Despite all of that, how or to what extent are you finding ways to engage in acts of joy, to engage in acts that allow you to be able to heal and or kind of retreat to the things that do inspire you to be such a creative person and to be a creative thinker? Yeah, and th- this was um, a really lovely question that I was happily surprised and excited by. So thank you so much for asking this. Um, because, yeah, so much of thinking through this time is about being present and being out, being a, being a witness, whether digital or physical, being witness to what's going on. And it takes a toll out um, on our minds and our bodies and also signals up and brings up, like, ancestral trauma, per, like, personal traumas that I've gone through. And so I've been like waxing and waning. I felt like the moon, you know, there's some days that I'm like really alert on full, looking at everything, absorbing, absorbing. And other days I just want to retreat and withdraw and like, not don't like, don't, won't pick up my phone at all. Um, So I want to start by saying like anger, rage, um, sadness it, it are all valid and they're all they're all um, they're all righteous you know they're all valid and all those emotions are valid and righteous and they, they we need to we need to hold them right now too often I think when these quote-unquote uncomfortable feelings come up because we all can't be you know happy robots all the time people want to talk around it or go through it really really fast because sitting in that emotion is uncomfortable sitting in that emotion is is awkward sitting in that emotion brings a lot of other things up um so in terms of joy i've been trying to teach myself different languages um so i'm, I'm right now i'm learning how to write urdu and it's been really interesting urdu is the, the national language of pakistan um and i've been it's been really interesting because the way that you know in diaspora we speak urdu is so much different with the way it's written like there's a higher register for it and so it's been interesting, interesting about the idea of hierarchy within languages as well, right? Because we know that for English. But I'm also just started teaching myself Swahili because a, a, a portion of my family's um, ancestors come from East Africa. So I've been drawing more connections between within the Indian Ocean as a region, as a space, as a, as a, as a place of connection and convergence. Being in quarantine has really, like because I'm in a relatively isolated um, town on the east, small town on the east coast, then using that as a way to, the isolation to, to reconnect with friends all over the world. Um, and so I've been reaching out to more people than I would typically because of like work, moving around, having a lot of things to do. So that's been really, really um, fulfilling. And uh, in the past, I, you know, as like a rape survivor, I've like disconnected from my body as a way to, as a way to survive, as a way to move forward. So I've also, I'm also working on trying to figure out different ways to connect to my body and feel like I'm, I'm in this, I'm in this, this shell, you know? One of my friends, shout out to Joelle, has sent me uh, 
really amazing mixes posted that's on NTS. Um, mixes by Nikisa, by the hosts Nakisi and Fauzia. Those have been really amazing and healing. And Ramzan recently um, ended. Um, so fasting is a way to um, think about spirituality um, and thinking about uh, justice and has been really, really um, powerful. Um, fasting as a meditation has also been really, really powerful as, as another way to connect with my, with my body and, and, and just being, being alive. We have a breath in, in certain meditative and mindfulness practice, having a breath and appreciating that as something that becomes the first step to moving beyond some of the pain and intergenerational trauma that you uh, spoke of. And also like what you said, like the honesty about emotions. In fact, as you know, uh, Audre Lorde has written an entire essay on the uses of anger and how it's, it's quite valid to have anger. It, it depends on how one uses it, but it, it can be the very thing that allows one to maybe build a community that you and others are forming so that you can not just only educate yourself, but also organize, uh, feel empowered and, and develop the care relationships that you mentioned. There's some books I've been reading I wanted to share. Um, there, so I, I I do the thing where I don't know other people do this, but they like I read the first few pages, like take a break, and then I end up being in the middle of reading five different books that haven't read. <laughs> I do the same thing. <laughs> yeah. So I'm on the first few pages of the following books, uh, except one, except one that I'm like going through the whole series. So um, so one day, one of these, uh, so when, one day I was feeling really, really overwhelmed uh, with being online um, these past few weeks. And just like, I sometimes I'm, I just, I just, it's, it's hard to even just type texts because I'm, I just like, I don't have the mental capacity to do so. So I, I withdrew because I had the time and the space to do that. And uh, I, uh, I, I just read Octavia Butler for like days and that felt so enriching and exciting and it really reminded me of like how, you know, it, through technology and, and social media and messaging each other, we've gotten used to this, like one of my friends said, like the staccato way of talking to one another, you know, messages here and there. Um, and even within like, you know, sending each other long emails or paragraphs, like there's, um, when you read a paragraph, you're taking everything in, you're not, can't really respond and respond in that, in, in, in that space at that time. So when I was reading uh, a novel by Octavia Butler, I, I really felt like Octavia, um, was talking to me. We're having a conversation. I was listening to her and it was, I was sharing space with her, time and space with her when I logged in to my phone, like a couple of days later, I was like, wow, like this is such a strange way of, of communicating ideas and thoughts on these platforms because these platforms are designed for, you know, capitalism and capturing data. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just wanted to share some, some books. Um, so I'm currently in the middle of, um, I, I finished Pattern Master series by her and I'm currently in the middle of the Lilith series. And I just started this poetry book recommended to me um, by Simone White called Being Dispersed. I just started this Wayward Lives by Cydia Hartment. Um, River of Fire by Horat Olein Heather. I'm reading some of those books as well. Wayward Lives I finished, I think it was last year in the fall. Nice. And I really, I was really impressed by it. And the stories in there allowed me to get a sense of like the kind of writing and history that I want to <laughs> write a bit more of. Uh, things that feature people like myself or people from the background that I come from, Ratchet and all. 
but uh yeah that this is all so lovely and i really appreciate what you've had to offer and um, contribute to this podcast thank you for joining us today yeah thank you edna i really appreciate um talking to you this uh for me it's, it's still morning so this morning thank you so much my name is Edna Bonhomme, and you're listening to the Decolonization in Action podcast. And this episode featured socially distant voices during season two. We'll occasionally provide coronavirus-related perspectives featuring decolonial activists, scientists, historians, migrant scholars, and interspersed with some other decolonial episodes that take a break from the current pandemic. I would like to express my gratitude to the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science and Christina Comer for her assistance. As always, there's a list of references and a bibliography in the show notes. To learn more about the podcast or to find out information about the people and events referenced, please visit www.decolonizationinaction.com. If you like what you hear, please rate, comment, and share the episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. We want to continue to support the scholars, activists, and artists who are putting decolonization in action. Thank you for joining us and stay safe and merry.